summertime y'all welcome to digging through with jesse alvarez a podcast celebrating the cultural omnivores in all of us today's episode is super exciting i talk with french writer poet editor marie valeo marie's chapbook submersion was the winner of our 2021 digging press chapbook prize The poetry collection articulates dignity, admiration, and a profound kinship for Beirut, Lebanon. Submersion is a subtle love letter exquisitely expressed in lyrical and narrative verse. Marie writes primarily in English, and her poetry, fiction, and nonfiction have appeared in literary magazines in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada. She is one of the Poetry Society's 2020 National Poetry Competition winners. She was raised in France, Norway, and Lebanon, and now lives in Paris. We we talked so much about Marie's experiences in her travels and growing up in in various places, not only just in uh, Beirut, Lebanon, but also in Norway and she was very candid about her personal experiences as uh, someone who had to constantly start over and try to fit in. I was uh, pretty good up until the second half of the interview where I quite frankly butchered a French word and I'm, I'm very uh, embarrassed by it. So I just want to correct myself if I may. So I should have said attentat, which is still really bad. But I, I said something else, and Marie, being the kind human that she is, uh, does not correct me, but really, she, she really should have just given me the evil eye at that point. Um, but she, um, she proceeds to treat us to readings of two poems from the collection, Awakening and When You Remember Your Exile in Reverse. It always ends like this. Here's me talking with Marie Baleo. Enjoy. So we're going to jump right in. And the first question I always ask is a short history of the chapbook itself, you know, how it came together. Like, I think it would have to start in, uh, in college, actually. I, I took an exposition class in, uh, in college in the United States, and uh, I had to write a paper, and I chose Lebanon. Uh, and it was the first time I've, I'd ever written about Lebanon. I was, I think, 19 or 20 then. And then I turned that paper in, and... Coming from the French school system, where you don't usually get compliments or positive feedback when you turn things in, um, I was really surprised that the professor seemed to like it, and she said that she she thought it was well written and really enjoyed it, and that it had moved her. And I thought uh, that I'd managed to get across to somebody who didn't know anything about Lebanon the way that I felt about it, and that in itself was was I think something that really encouraged me. And I and then much later on, when I was in my late twenties, I started writing. For the first time uh, since college, uh, but just for myself and for fun. And I started writing fiction and uh, and nonfiction originally. And um, I started reading a lot of American 
reviews and magazines and stuff with a lot of short stories, a lot of nonfiction, slash nonfiction also. Uh, and I almost never read poetry because I quite frankly hated poetry. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you mean by that, though? Are you talking about oh. contemporary poetry or classic poetry? Because it's so, you know... Well, <laughs> all I knew was classic poetry. And I don't know if you do this in the United States, but when we're kids here in France, we have to learn poems by heart and go ahead and recite them in front of the whole classroom. And I was very shy and I really hated that as a kid. And my mom was very into it. She would have me rehearse and she's like, you have to put yourself like more of yourself into this. And it was just like, I would deadpan through it and I was so embarrassed. And then I would stand in front of the class and I was just drove right through it and then get a bad grade and just go home and hate it and not hate myself but hate everything else and especially poetry and then I I swore to myself I'd never ever read poetry and then we studied poems in high school again um and when I was in Lebanon and my best friend and I hated the the poetry book that we studied so much just because it was poetry I talk about it here in the book we we burned it down and buried it after graduation which is a little bit extreme in hindsight. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then in my 20s, I didn't seek out poetry at all. To me, it was all very, I don't know, very foreign and very intimidating and also very probably a little too sincere and honest and in a way that I kind of dreaded. So I really didn't read poetry for a long time until I was in my late 20s and started reading all these U.S. magazines. And then I started reading poetry and I saw that it wasn't uh, necessarily all the classic stuff that we've been taught and that it was actually very free and that you could do it in a bunch of different ways. I had trouble telling poetry from nonfiction, from hybrid. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So you basically just write what you want and that's poetry. And it's like, I can get with that program. So I started trying to write poems and they were terrible at first. And I wrote you know, a lot of poems that were really too bad to show anyone. I started reading more and more and seeing what other young poets were doing. Um, and then it sort of came together. And after a while, it sort of just unblocked itself. And I would come home every night after work and try to write new poems. And it was just um, poems about things that I felt strongly about. And one of those things was Lebanon. Uh, and then during lockdown in um, 2020, uh, I thought to myself, well, you know, I've been writing poems for what, three years now, and it would be really great if I could try to put something together. Um, and so I saw, I looked at all the poems that I had, and a lot of them were about Lebanon. And I thought to myself, maybe there was something there. So I put all of them together in the order that seemed most logical to me. And then I thought, that it kind of told a story and uh, and I should probably try to build that and develop it a little more. Um, so I wrote a few additional poems that connected the existing ones that I had. In the end, it ended up with something that I think is a little bit narrative. Funny, a couple, of, uh, just going back to um, what you first said about poetry and learning mm. it, someone forced you to take it in, memorize it, and then actually expose yourself and read it at that age which is already, ah, I don't want to do that. Then you said that you knew when you started to write poetry that something didn't work or something wasn't quite there yet and you had to keep working at it. So to me, it feels like that early education actually did come in handy, right? Because you got exposed to it. You got an ear for it, even if you hate it. But that helps you understand that, you know, this is a way of using language that's a little different from speaking or and it has something that it needs in order for it to work. And yeah. That's the foundation, right? I also thought it was interesting you said that you started writing about Lebanon in a nonfiction way, right? Just relating facts about your experiences there, I'm assuming. 
and how, I mean, I don't know if you find this, sometimes reality feels more real to me when I mm. write it out as fiction as opposed to nonfiction. And I don't know if that's because we then have license to language in a way that we didn't have license to that language. I, I also wrote short stories about Lebanon, and uh, I felt I could also speak very freely uh, in the stories. And there wasn't any sense of, I always feel like when I'm writing nonfiction, uh, everyone, it's me that I'm talking about, and they're looking over my shoulder, and what are they going to think of this and that, all the people that I know. Uh, <laughs> and then how is this going to reflect on me? And of course, you don't have this at all in fiction. You can just go ahead and create the most horrific people and like the most selfish and judgmental characters that you want. And nothing, no one's ever going to think it's about you or it's, it's describing you. Um, so there's a lot of freedom in that. But I also felt like writing fiction about Lebanon could sometimes be a little tricky because I felt like it was such a sensitive subject that I had to stick to the truth, to the facts and to everything that happened. And for example, not create um, sort of fictional incidents, fictional uh, bombings, fictional murders, fictional things that I hadn't seen, which I did do in one of my stories. Uh, and someone I really, I really love very deeply asked me uh, if it was my story, if it was about me or something I'd seen. And it was just this story about someone getting brutally murdered in the middle of the street. And I was like, no, I did not see that. And then in hindsight, I thought, you know, who am I to be writing about, you know, things like this and said them in Lebanon, which is not my country, and, and describe things in a way that seems very realistic, but is completely fictional, which is a, a sort of internalized criticism that I think is also very dumb, uh, because if fiction is only about writing about your own experience, then the world is going to turn uh, a lot less interesting than it is. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get the sense that in fiction, you're, you're freer, but it also comes with a sort of responsibility to watch out for what you might be saying is you don't want to be trite in how you, mm -hmm. you approach the subject, right? Yeah. You want mm -hmm. it to have important. Also, yeah, feel exactly. three-dimensional. You don't want it to be flat. I talk to a lot of nonfiction people, and they're <laughs> always like, I don't know how you write fiction. I can never make up stuff. And I always mm. say to them, but I'm not making up anything. You know, even if I were to write a plot-driven story, which I actually tend not to do, but if I were and it had murders, yeah. that murder has to mean something. Right. There has to be a point for that to happen in the story. Yeah. Maybe it's a philosophical point, something, but it's not yeah. made up, you know, entirely. And um, I think that's always interesting when you talk to different writers. So I want to really get into this the book now. And one thing about your book is that what I find interesting is that the outsider in your collection is not lonely. It's not isolated. It's not feeling like mm -hmm. they don't belong necessarily you know they're sort of watching and seeing what's going on but they're also they, yeah. they feel part of it and they don't quite understand why they feel a part of it sometimes mm -hmm. but they they feel it they're determined to be a part of it um so i wanted to talk a little bit about that yeah, uh, it's really it's really important because um, I, I was born in France, but we moved away from France when I was nine years old. Um, and, and prior to that, already it felt like an outsider, to be honest, because um, I, I skipped two grades. So I felt like I wasn't quite like the other kids. And they also made me feel they were very intent on making me feeling like I wasn't one of them. Um, <laughs> and there was another thing is that I was I had a a deathly uh, peanut allergy um, that also meant I, I was a little bit different from everyone else. Like the school had to know about my allergies. The other kids 
well. And I was always treated um, differently, either because people were very scared and they try, were trying to care for me or because the kids, you know, kids can be cruel when you're different. Um, and so I always felt different. And at first I was really um it, it oscillated between trying to fit in and trying to just be like uh screw them like i'm going to be myself because i can't be different um i can't be like them I, I will always be different and i was it was sort of this very defensive thing where i was like i'm I, i'm an outsider but i'm better than them and they're not my world and uh <laughs> that was when i was very small and then i actually moved um, to norway when i was nine years old where i was an actual outsider where all of these prior differences were very much minimized by the very much bigger difference uh, that I now had compared to other people, which was that I was not Norwegian. Um, I lived in Norway for four years. Um, I And I really, really wanted to be uh, just like everybody else. I was in school with, with like 90% of the kids were Norwegian. And I started learning Norwegian and English by watching television. Just, um, and it just, I, I learned, I learned it pretty quickly. And I really wanted to be like the other kids. And I also never really wanted to forget the sort of French part of me. Uh, but I, I sort of made my own mix. And I was able to both be comfortable with the Norwegians and sometimes be comfortable with the French uh, or going back to France. And whenever I came back to Norway, I really felt like I was home. And when I started returning to France for vacation, I started feeling like I wasn't like the other people in, in France at all. <laughs> and then soon it was like I fit in nowhere quite perfectly, really. <laughs> I fit in Norway pretty well because I could speak Norwegian, but I never had a look, <laughs> you know, when I was in, in middle school, I had very curly brown hair and it was very small and all the girls were blonde and, you know, tall and straight haired. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to pass as one of them. But, <laughs> but I still started feeling, you know, like very integrated. And then when I returned to Norway, like a decade later, I also felt very comfortable there and I felt like I was coming home in a way. So I, I sort of knew from an early age how to make the outsider thing sort of work. Um, and then when I was 13 years old, I moved to Lebanon, which was also a, a completely different experience. But in Lebanon, um, a lot of people spoke French. So it already felt like more familiar to me than a Norway had felt at first. That, But I also always felt like I was very conscious that I was French and that everybody else was Lebanese. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of French people in my school. All of my friends were not French. But I did make friends quickly and I did sort of take it on very quickly. Like I was very eager to sort of learn everything about the country and, and live the full local life, like not in a cliche or touristy way at all, but just I wanted to be like the other kids and, and sort of feel like I'd been here the whole time and like I was going to be there forever, which was, I guess, my way of sort of coping with a new environment is just really going into it. And which I did again later in college, uh, which was the first time that I came to the U.S. And it really felt very quickly like I was at home, even though I was always acutely aware of not being American. But yeah, so I, it's definitely the, the collection is definitely written from perspective of an outsider because um, that's what I was. But it's also written. I'm not ashamed to say that I feel like I left my home, even though I'd only been there for three years. And I know that some people who've been there their whole lives or some people from other places who have lived in the same place their whole lives will be like, well, three years is nothing. And I don't think you can be that quite that heartbroken or relieving a place of where you've lived. 
for that short period of time. But I am not, uh, I don't agree with that. And I'm not ashamed to say that it was really heartbreaking, uh, even though it technically had, you know, not even been like half a decade. But to me, it was everything. Like I lived there from 13 to 16, which are really important years uh, when you're young. And it just, I, it felt like I had been there forever. I had my whole life there, all of my friends, my best friend, everything. And so I didn't quite feel like an outsider um, anymore. But that when I came to France, God, did I feel like an outsider there. <laughs> I had a horrible culture shock, like coming to Paris, because I hadn't lived in Paris before. Uh, I visited for vacation like a few times, but all in all, probably like a week. <laughs> um, I came here and I was very, I don't know, Lebanized. Like I, I, I think it spoke differently from other people. I, I had sort of the same linguistic mannerisms that my friends had. Um, and I would come to school and say hi and bye to people instead of like salut, uh, like everyone here says. And I think I just looked like an alien. I dressed differently from all the posh kids from, you know, Par Parisian high schools. Uh, I didn't, I was 16 also, so I was younger than them. And I really, I, I was completely not fit for, for that life. And I stuck out like a sore thumb and I never, ever quite felt I belonged until like way, way later. When after a while, I was like, well, you've been suffering through Paris long enough that you've earned the title and you are now from Paris, like all of these people who come here and hate it and live here for a long time. <laughs> and now I feel like sort of, yeah, I feel like I belong here, but I'm always going to be an outsider. And, and essentially, that's pretty much the, the, the way that I felt my whole life everywhere I've been. Like, yes, I'm different and not I'm not like the people who actually belong here, but this is fine. And, you know, I can, I, I'm also from here partly and I'm not afraid to, to look at it that way. You know, I don't feel like I need to be fully, you know, grown in a place to, to be from there. And I can say that I'm from Norway and France and Lebanon and none of these things are lies, but none of them are quite true either. And that's okay. <laughs> but it's, it's funny because there's this, I mean, this is about culture more than anything else, right? There's, I can, in the book, you feel that there's um, this European culture present in the book that feels to me traditional and somewhat strict, and it has the rules, and these are the rules, and this is how we. And then you have this Lebanese culture in the book that feels way looser, and perhaps that's because it's it's a much more um, complicated history or. It's a much more complicated history now versus, you know, mm. 500, 600 years ago, like it was in France, you know. So you feel that there's tension and it, it could be conflict in the book, but somehow it's also not conflict. Mm. Like there's this sort of, and I'm not sure what that is, but it, it, I feel it in there. Mm. I feel that, that there, there's, there's two parts in there and these completely different cultures, yet they're not so different in other ways. Hmm. Yeah. And you're experiencing them both at the same time. Yeah. yeah well, you're the voice in your, in your poetry is. <laughs> no, that's very true. And I would say, um, I also, well, part of what you're feeling when you're reading it is probably because, uh, the European culture is the culture that we had at home, uh, where I had to be a good student and, and my parents, I lived alone with my parents, so there was nobody else. And it's just, you know, whenever I spoke French or was in a very, when I was around two Europeans, essentially, is when I had to do my homework and, and you know, 
conduct myself properly at all. And when I was outside in, in the Lebanese culture, uh, was also incidentally where when I was with my friends and, and free to do anything I wanted and say anything I wanted. Um, not that my parents were tyrants or anything. It's just the basic, you know, home versus not home thing that you have when you're a teenager. Um, but also um, about the culture uh, aspect of it. I think Lebanon is very, is very interesting because you obviously have um, Lebanese culture, which is um, extremely rich and, and extremely interesting. And then you also have a lot of, um, a lot of French culture mixed in there, which actually I think is by now part of the Lebanese identity as well is because um, for a very long time, uh, everyone spoke French or I mean, most of the people spoke French. Um, and a lot of things are, when you walk around in the street, a lot of things are in French and people speak perfect French. It's, it's got a lot of that Frenchness to it. And it also is very American in a way. Um, there's, there are American products and things there that I got used to uh, growing up that I never ever saw again in France. And I thought they were quite universal, actually, but I used to read like 17 magazine and eat Lucky Charms. And I figured out that none of these things existed here. Um, but to me, they were sort of supposed to be everywhere. And then one day I could kind of realized that they were very American and that for some reason we had a lot of American things in, in Lebanon and a lot of American culture as well. Like I spent all these years just watching American movies with my friends at the theater all the time or at home all the time. And that's also where I learned to continue learning to speak English. And yeah, it was just we listened to American music all the time. I mean, we were, you know, it's a globalized world and it was very true of Lebanon. Uh, which perhaps felt to me more globalized culturally than France does. Probably comes across in the book in, in some poems. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think about it, but now as you're speaking, that makes complete sense. It's not so much that the European culture is stricter, it's, it's always more restrictive, right? And recognition, that, that's another aspect of this outsider um, voice. Usually, you know, the outsider archetype, there's a desire for belonging. There's a desire to not feel so isolated, um, to be recognized somehow. But the voice in the poems, it feels like there is a recognition of them as a person, these new friends. That it's new. That's a new experience for that voice. That that, it, that they're relishing in it. You know. Mm. Is yeah. that true? Is that? something that's present yeah, there? Yeah, for sure. I, I never quite felt like I was isolated. Maybe on the first day of school when I didn't know anyone, but um, yeah, I brought a book to school and started reading it in the middle of the playground, sort of, and it just must have looked so sad and lonely, and my friend came, my future friend came over to me, and she was like, do you want to take a walk with me? And I was like, mm, no, because I was too shy. So I, I rejected her for like a few times in a row, but she sort of stuck with it and, and insisted. And then after a while, uh, we became really good friends. And then I had a group of friends, so it didn't take a lot of time. Um, and I never felt isolated, or at least not any more than any new kid in school would feel. And I never felt that I was being isolated because of uh, because of being an outsider or anything. Um, because you know, a lot of people there are a lot of French people in, in Lebanon, and there are also Le Lebanese people who are also French who have dual citizenship. And so I just never felt like I was quite as different uh, from everyone like I did in Norway, where you know there were very few French people and no one spoke French pretty much. Um, so I didn't feel that isolated, and I made a, a really great group of friends um, very quickly in Lebanon, and uh, I really sort of enjoyed that a lot because I hadn't had that before. Um, so yeah, I think I think you can feel that in the book, probably just sort of the joy of finding um, these people. It's also, it's, you're, I mean, you're referencing a post-colonial 
history there, right? Hmm. Which I think is is part of post-colonialism is that on the one hand, you know, Europe had Europe and the, the Americas had you know this influence, which is a very kind word <laughs> over all these countries. Um, there's this culture left behind still that's ever present and that's there and that's been adapted and perhaps even changed mm. a bit, but it feels familiar, right? Yeah, it's familiar to to someone that comes from the colony, yeah. <laughs> the the actual imperial, yeah, yeah right, sure. Um, which I find, you know, I mean, that's what makes post-colonialism so complicated. But let's talk about the images and poetry. You know, with, with poems, I, to me, it's not, it's not photography. It's not like I'm supposed to like take exactly the words that the poet is putting, creating an image and making a photograph in my head of that image. This, it's more about something that you can't really name, right? Yeah. So for me, it was, this tremendous empathy and compassion in the language, no matter what spoken of. Is that something that you feel conscious of when you're writing poems or that just happens? And if it does happen, is it a surprise to you? Or do you see no, it? No, I didn't. I don't even, I don't see it. It's probably something I just do when I write. I don't, I'm very curious to, to know what makes you feel like there's compassion and empathy. It's probably... To me, I would say it's just that I really love the things that I'm writing about. So that's probably what comes through. Um, and I try to be very honest because I don't have anything to, like, it, it would, there would be no point in writing things I don't feel. Um, so I try to be very sincere and I try to find the words that, um, reflect the way that I feel in the most precise and sort of faithful way. And I think, um, that's probably why people reading it will hopefully feel that it's very honest and that somebody is talking to them um, about their reality. Um, so, yeah, but no, I mean, I'm curious to, yeah, it's, it's really awesome that you think it's, uh, there's compassionate empathy there. I'm, I'm feeling very, yeah. I mean, it's, it's always, you know, it's like, it's really what a, poem, what a poet is, right? That's what a poet does with communicate to the world. And it's really important, but it's always interesting because I feel like for some readers, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I've, I've experienced people kind of, Tell me, oh, but what did you mean when 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 you used this exact thing? And what did you, you know, <laughs> take it for whatever you need to take it? Well, it's yeah. you waiting, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's supposed sure. to be free, but but I do know some writers that are very conscious of of those images and yeah. symbols, and you know, they are trying to achieve some sort of philosophical truth or something. Um, yeah. So I'm always I'm always curious, like where you're at as, as, a, as a poet. Like, mm. I just like to hear where, where it's coming from. It's, it felt to me very organic. It didn't feel to me like you were yeah. trying hard to, yeah. mm. like you were just speaking from the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what I wanted the most was to be able to, and not with regard to other people, but just for myself, I wanted to be able to write words that would reflect the way that I felt. And that was really the whole goal of all of this and all, all the writing that I do. Um, I only write, poems that I enjoy uh, or that I think are any good when they're about things that mean a lot to me. So I've written about like my family. I've written about um, what it's like to be a woman in this world. <laughs> and I've written about uh, Lebanon. Um, and every single time that I've done those things, it was because I wanted to, I felt so strongly. Like I, there's this 
intensity of emotion and it could either be anger or sadness or nostalgia or love or just heartbreak or anything that I just wanted to put it out there and I it was so strong that I wanted to see if I would be able to put it into words and then share it with other people ultimately down the line and whether they'd be able to sort of feel what I'd meant um, and that's really the meaning that's that's the only goal that I have when I write is that I want to be as precise and to, to really account for how I'm feeling. I just want people to feel the intent, the same intensity that I feel. So I think the, that's what's behind the images. And um, I also, also about Lebanon because it's a place that I uh, left and, and did not return, um, did not come back to. I wanted uh, sort of the images to be sort of very fixated on paper. Uh, that makes sense. I wanted the memories to just be out there um, before they, I don't know, faded over the years and stuff. And I wanted to fix them sort of on paper while they were still very uh, intensely emotional for me. So that's what I that's what I try to do. But I, I think I'll always be very feel very strongly about that period and place in my life. So I wanted to talk particularly about one poem in the collection because it's very different from the rest, and that's um, attempt uh, attempt mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which yeah. means attack, right? Because it's the one poem that political uh, event that you're detailing or a violent attack. Um, yeah. That's written a very particular way. And if it's very different from all the other poems, but it feels very vital to the collection. So I wanted to like talk about that and why it's in here and why it's so mm. important. Yeah. Well, that's a very good question. Um, the reason that it's in here is because I that that was really the first sort of violent political event that happened in the country while I was there, uh, because there had been, I think, a few years of sort of relative peace um, where nothing quite as terrible as this had happened. Um, and to me, I'd been there for, I think, a year and a half at that point um, and just living it up and enjoying the perfect life. And just, you know, it was paradise pretty much. Um, and I was aware of the whole history of civil war. Like, I mean, it's hard to not be aware because it's pretty much everywhere you look, but it felt very, you know, ancient to me the same way that, um, being in France and looking at, you know, Second World War, um, monuments and places would make me feel as a kid, uh, like something that was very ancient and old and not, you know, not likely to happen again. Um, but that event, sort of came out of nowhere to me because I wasn't at all politically aware of anything that was happening in the country, not too much. Um, and so I, I don't think a lot of people saw it coming anyway. And um, it was just, it sort of switched on a new era and it just sort of catapulted everyone into this whole new period of Lebanon's history. And there were a lot more um, bombings after that, like never wide scale bombings targeting civilians, but always very targeted assassinations of politicians and journalists and, um, and, and sort of that sort of started sort of happening over, over a few months. Uh, but that event that I talk about in that poem is really the first one. And I felt like it was, I wanted to write about it because it's the exact moment that I was sort of snapped out of the dream and, and thrown into a new sort of reality. And the reality that I lived in after that was still pretty much heavenly because I still had my lovely life with my lovely friends and a beautiful country that I love to explore with them. Uh, but at the same time, there was also this very dark and dangerous stuff that was happening. And everyone had to become like a, a little bit more aware uh, of what they were doing and where they were going. Like my dad worked in an embassy. 
Um, so we had to be a little bit careful, uh, nothing crazy, but just it was a little different from before. And it felt like it wasn't quite as innocent and, and you know, fun as it had been before. Uh, but still, at the same time, it was extremely fun because I was still living my life. And so the contrast between these two things was was very strange. Uh, it was very new to me because I'd always lived in perfectly safe places. And it also made me feel a lot more um, strongly about the positive aspects and, and love even more deeply the things that I enjoyed in Lebanon, like the places and, and, and my friends and all. Um, and it sort of sort of heightened the intensity of everything. And then it sort of culminated uh, in, in the war in 2006, although I think it's completely unrelated. But to me, it felt like, you know, event after event after event. And then this final big event <laughs> threw me out of the country. That's why I felt like it belonged in the book somehow is because that's when things started to sort of change. And then a year and a half later, I think, is when the war happened. So that's when I left Lebanon. Um, so it really felt important to be able to show uh, that change from just a very positive experience. Um, and there wouldn't have been much to write about if there hadn't been uh, a very negative experience. Well, very strong change in the middle of that. Uh, and then a, a situation afterwards that was very different uh, from before. And, and the poems that follow are different from the poems before that. that yeah. so I think that was a perfect um, way of showing everything yeah. you just said, because it felt to me like, okay, there, yeah, this is different, and why is it here? Oh, okay. You get through the, the second half of the book, and you realize, yeah. oh, okay, this, this is yeah. that moment that, you know, changes things, but yet also makes you feel closer to this place somehow. Yeah. So yeah. it's conveyed so beautifully, you know, and without really doing much, <laughs> popping that in there and it's amazing how that just happens when you have a grouping of poems you know they that's when mm -hmm. the narrative stuff starts yeah. to happen and, and yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it works it works amazing so you have a couple of poems that you want to read for yeah. us um yeah there's one from the, the very beginning of the collection um that's called awakening awakening there once was a house we did not want to leave we left these things happen all the time. Some days we are overcome with shifting visions of its insides, the pale twist of its marble hallways, the curvature of a certain wall, every square inch like the body of our mother. The sound of closing doors is secret recording we play for ourselves. The long breath of the muezzin, the smell of rainy cardboard. Life from above, light from within. We spent years building cathedrals for our loss, visited them on Sundays. We never tired of them, or they of us. We held on to the phantom hands of our beloved. We folded their pictures many times over until they became invisible. We salvaged all that we could reach, and the rest never returned. Sometimes, voices find us and tell us what we long suspected, that we never go back, that we never see it again. There is no consolation. There is a certain something that will not be silenced or bludgeoned, no matter how hard we try. It glides along your skin, whispers to your wrists. It wants us going, knowing all along most of our endeavors will fail, knowing all along how it ends, but going. There was never anything else, only this. When you remember your exile in reverse, it always ends like this. 
It all begins with your hand aloft, strangling a coop, raising a toast. Bubbles roll out of your mouth, a burgeoning cyclone, your throat the waterfall. No, it was never a coop. A glass? No, a plastic cup. And it was never champagne, only water from the last bottle. You have washed ashore on a mattress, an island in a lake of barren marble. The house is empty. This is your last night in it. But every minute elapsed brings reparation. The dining table, once disassembled, is now whole again. Cardboard boxes send books scrambling for their cases. Curtains unfold at once, dark sheets of hair slipping out of an untied ribbon. Paintings and photographs lurch up the walls. The clothes you grabbed on the day you left float before the shelves until they rejoin their place. Next, your father is returned. He airs into the kitchen where the last chords of the song can be heard. You return. Suitcase abandoned in the hallway, hands shaking, you return. You run backwards up seven stories in the dark until you reach home. Here, everything carries the faded smell of a familiar ache, a comforting loss like the ache for the scent of your infant brother's hair. Your father, the curator, has kept your room untouched for a year. Twelve months have gone by. He has reigned alone over a kingdom of slowly decaying groceries. Ants have made the fridge their dominion. Desert dust hovers about the valley that splits the mountain ranges open like rotten fruit. In your father's mind, plans to get you out of the country begin to unravel. The electricity clicks back on, the walls of the power plant summoned back together by a magnetic hand. A reappears on the threshold. She kisses you, takes back all her goodbyes. Tears crawl up her cheeks and shrink into her caruncles. In three years, she will sit next to you on the first day of school and tell you her name. At night, bombs bolt from fractured buildings into the entrails of invisible planes. Pilots recoil to their homeland down south, climb into the beds where their wives lay sleeping. With them, the sound of explosions recedes, bursts of blinding lights coax us back to sleep. One by one, the words on the CNN ticker dissipate, block letters losing ground to the lull of summer. The landline stops ringing. Your parents run to the restaurant they left precipitously, Settle once more before their plates for their last dinner. In an hour, your father will be 39 once again. At home, where you remain, alone, the final girl almost falls prey to the monster. One by one, her friends resuscitate. Outside, the night has thrown a thousand darts of light onto the sprawling hills. From the cloudless air, the silent breath is returned to your throat. I have another question. Like, you wrote these in English. Why? Yeah, because I, you know how I told you earlier about how I felt like an outsider when I came back to France when I was 16 years old? Well, the truth is I came here and only watched American movies, read American books, and then moved to the U.S. as soon as I could, um, and essentially didn't want to engage at all with French culture for the longest time, and also didn't want to write in French at all. Um, and so when I started writing in the U.S. for college for this uh, exposition paper I was talking about, that was in English. And then a few years later, uh, when I started reading literature, literary magazines, that was also in English because I wasn't still wasn't very interested in, in French culture, um, which has changed. But, you know, wasn't the case back then. So I started reading all these poems in English and I felt there was a lot of freedom there. Um, and also probably two other reasons. One is that um, it's not my native language. So I feel a little freer uh, speaking it in a language that's not mine. Things probably feel a little bit more remote when they're not spoken in your first language somehow. 
I have, a, I'm also sometimes a lot more articulate in explaining the way that I feel uh, about personal things in English than I do in French, where I'm kind of a, at a loss for words, even though my French is obviously a lot better than my English. And the third reason would probably be that um, in high school, I did speak a lot, a lot of English with my friends, and especially my best friend. She, she spoke English better than she, in French. So we, we spoke English all the time. And so when I wanted to write about Lebanon, it made more sense, um, given the things that I wanted to write about, to write in English. It, it almost feels like the language closest, and I, maybe I feel the same way about Spanish, is almost like the one that you lack the most vocabulary um, in terms of getting in touch with yeah. what you really want to say and kind of shape all the emotions, like the sort of sentimentality maybe. I, I, I don't know. So that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Thank you, Marie. That was really informative. <laughs> I learned so much about Thank you. It was really fun talking to you about this. Oh, that was lovely. Thank you, Marie Baleo, for chatting with me and for sharing your poetry. Remember to take a minute to like and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Audible, and many other places. You can follow us at Digging Press on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks all for listening. Happy summer, take care and flowers. Mm-hmm.